I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room. This is not only a podcast this week, but we're on the Outsports YouTube channel. So if you want to watch as well as listen, you have a choice. Carly, our special guest this week, we're beaming up Whipping Girl author, Julia Serrano, who has a new book out. She is a biologist. She is an acclaimed writer. And she also just happens to be a transgender woman. I am just so chuffed about getting her on this show, but we've got some news to talk about. What was the latest that you heard, Carly? There was an action in Texas today? HB, um, HB 1646 passes through the Texas Senate. It's now going back to the House. And if it passes in the House, then it goes to the governor's desk. And simply put, uh, this bill's ugly. Because this bill basically says if you are a healthcare, not only if you're a healthcare worker and you help and you give affirming care to transgender youth, we're going to throw you in jail. We're going to find you. And if you're a parent who is supporting their child, you could have your children taken away because that's called child abuse in the great state of Texas. Right now, Monica Roberts is rolling in her grave. She's probably up there cussing right now. And rightfully so. This is yeah. this is horrible you know what really shocked me i saw an ap story and it was about how alabama and the other states who have already passed anti-trans laws have seen no repercussions no businesses boycotting no people celebrities marching it's not like north carolina all those years ago this is just basically being allowed maybe when it goes to court maybe then there'll be some action but i was just shocked Basically, everyone's going ho hum. Yeah, and that's the the only people that haven't gone. The only people that have gone at least just ho is the NCAA. <laughs> yes, and they even backtracked on that, saying they haven't made any decisions. They're willing to look at it, but I don't know. I'm just waiting for that other shooter drop. There was good news over the week. Connecticut, the federal judge, she uh, he dropped the uh, he dismissed the case uh, filed by. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, and that a huge victory for trans athletes in Connecticut. And now, of course, ADF wants to appeal. Well, of course they do. Yeah, well, we'll see. Well, of course they do. They're going to they're going to keep at it. And personally, I'd like to see them leave leave Connecticut, and not come back. I mean, that's what the governor said. I mean, that's what you know? Ned Lamont did say. Quote: "But out." And yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd be in total agreement with that. But there's something that's been on my mind about this, Don, and I know the ADF won't do it, but I'm going to tell Christina Holcomb right now. There are two there are two girls from my state. Their names are Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller, and I think you owe them a public apology. Well, in fact, they did it again in their, in their statement. They called yes. them males. Yes. And, and... I wouldn't be, I'll tell, if I was either one of them's father, I'd be talking to the Lord and saying, no, defamation of character suit. No, I would not go, yet. I would go full, I would go, go both guns and say, look, I'm going to do to you what a lot of people did to the clan. I'm going to do, let's defund the, let's defund transphobia. Well, I can only I'm say, for that. I, I spoke to Mr. Yearwood and uh, Rashawn told me for an Outsports story that, you know, for once at least a marginalized group was recognized and respected by this decision. But I think he wants Andrea to go on with her life. Mm -hmm. She's not pursuing sports anymore. 
She wants to pursue a degree. Mm -hmm. She should be left alone. Why keep dragging her name through this? She's not competing anymore. And they keep lying about how they won all these medals and stole scholarships and everything else. And it's just all bull. And (sighs) and I agree. And and on that one, I can agree and I can understand. Although I'll admit, I look forward to a day, maybe in Mm -hmm. the future, when when Andrea and I are doing a 10K together. (laughs) I... I'm, I'm gonna I'll cheer call, you on to the finish, the finish line. <laughs> I'm gonna call no. I'm gonna call that right. Hey, Andrea, you and I, five k sometime, or just hang out in the track and work out, so I can like eat your dust. I mean, just to say <laughs> I raced Andrea Yearwood, I would, I would like that. But seriously, I bet also, you still could do a, it. Yeah. A little note about Texas, real quick. Yeah, what's one that? Of, one of the cities going for the 2020, going for Super Bowl Fifty Six is Dallas. Oh. The end well, should not be allowed. I, I would like the. I mean. I, in in my dream world, in in my smells like teen utopia, I would love it if the NFL said, if Texas passed that law, you'll never see a Super Bowl in Texas again. Well, I know, hope. I know it's a long, I know it's a long shot and possibility, but I would like to see that. I'd like to see some people. I'd love to see, say, a Mercedes Benz who has a major facility that builds a lot of cars in Alabama. Say, um, um. Alfreda's in Alabama. We're leaving. <laughs> I would like that. Well, we also have some really tragic news to report. More trans murders. And it's 2021 is on track to be worse than the worst year ever, 2020. We had three more, three more in just the last couple of days. And, you know, it just goes to prove that living your life authentically can be a death sentence. And this is why some black trans women never even see 35. You know what I'm going to say about this. And yes, it's ridiculous. I do. It is, it's, it is, I, I get scared when I read those for two reasons. One, I see people look, looking like me dying. And number yeah. two, I'm afraid I, it could be me. And, and just a note for anybody listening who comes to my Twitter page, I don't want to hear any anti-sex worker crap. I don't want to hear any slut shaming. No, don't excuse this. It's time, especially in in my community among black folks, we need to be talking about this because this isn't this is a problem. Yeah. I didn't give I didn't give up my blackness because I decided to pursue my truth of who I am and my gender identity. I'm getting sick and tired of people just sweeping this stuff under the rug. We need to be dealing with this and not just here, but in all our communities. LGBTQ, anti-LGBTQ violence is violence, whether it's the physical violence on our streets, whether it's economic violence, or whether it's the violence of people like the ADF and current, and it seems the legislature in the state of Texas. Sure. And Misgendering Alabama, is violence and then, too. Yes. And, you know, be black and be proud, Carly. And I support you and I want to well, amplify your voice. Well, um, well, yes, but my thing is, being black and being trans, they are not exclusive. No. You can no. be both, and I am both, and it's time people started. We got to give it to him here. This is starting, this is getting ridiculous, and it's and it's getting worse, and it's, get, it's getting worse, and we're every, it seems like every year, we've been saying that for the past five years now. We're More. on pace for the worst year ever. We're on pace. Can We've already been through one brutal thing for LGBTQ people, which is this pandemic. Well, one of the wonderful parts of the book Whipping Girl, which I happen to have right here, 
is when Julia Serrano talks about the murder of a woman in Boston and how that really catapulted our Trans Day of Remembrance. And I'd like you to set coordinates right now for Oakland, California, where Julia Serrano is gonna beam up to the transporter room. Getting a lock on the home city of Trans Lifeline, Oakland, California. One to beam up energized. Welcome, Julia Serrano. Hey, Julia. Hi. I was doing the joke about, like, should I be doing this for the transporter beams? But, yeah. <laughs> or you could, do, you could do one of these, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Pop up. Just, Julia just Serrano, sure. thank you for joining us in the transporter room. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. Well, I was just referring to a murder that you will know all too well. And friends of mine who uh, were related to the victim and who saw that terrible crime and said, we've got to do something. We've got to make a statement. Would you tell us a little bit about that for folks who may not know? So uh, you said Boston. I, I remember uh, writing Sorry. about- I, I was, oh, yeah, I was... Guinaraho in yeah. Yeah, Newark, California. Yeah, that I mean, that was very mobilizing. And I will say there were uh, numerous murders before then that were very mobilizing the trans communities, especially um, I transitioned in like 2001. And so a lot of 1990s activism amongst the many things that 1990s activists did, a lot of it was starting to organize around um, and, and raise attention to with regards to um, transphobic violence and the murder of trans people. And here locally, it was actually like right shortly after I transitioned, Guadarajo um, was a teenager um, who was not just murdered for being trans, um, but it was, uh, I think people are, are familiar with, are more familiar with uh, the, the movie Boys There was a Don't movie Cry. based on her. About, about well about Brandon Tina is boys oh, don't cry it was of kind of a similar thing in that it was a trans teenager just being their genuine self um who upon uh kind of it being discovered discovered that she was trans um was just really brutally murdered um and it was also it became a famous or infamous um, case because it was, I think, the last one in California that the defendants used the trans, the trans panic defense, panic defense yeah. where they basically said, apparently, um, and I will use the word alleged because um, I don't know all the facts, etc. But allegedly, I think at least one of the people who murdered her had been intimate with her. Um, mm. And so that was some of the impetus there. So they they claimed it was trans panic that once they found out, um, I think it was probably the last one, the uh, last time that was used in California because shortly thereafter, a law was passed saying that you can't use that defense anymore. So- well, Yeah, I was, I was thinking of one in Boston that preceded it, but I'm blanking on the name, but I know the Gwen story was actually made into a movie as well. I think it was my name is Gwen or something. Okay. along those lines, but such a tragedy whenever these things occur and they're still occurring. And I was wondering about how they affect you personally, knowing that it was so close to your transition time that the Gwen murder happened. Yeah, I mean, I would say the Gwen Araujo murder hit me the most 
personally, like they're all tragic. It's, it's hard to be a human being, let alone a trans human being and not feel emotionally impacted by these events when they happen. Um, sure. The Guanajuato one was very close to me because it was shortly after I had come out. Um, at the time I was performing a ton, I was doing, um, I was performing as a musician and I was also around that time doing, I started doing slam poetry. So I was basically getting up on stage a couple nights a week and my slam poetry was all total trans slam poetry. So I was basically outing myself to people um, just in these bars doing slam poetry events. And then I'd be like walking back to my car being like, holy shit, I hope nobody is, you know, like, like just wrong person, wrong mm -hmm. situation. That's what a lot of these. You had are. to look over your shoulder, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite parts in the book is when you talk about um, a few months after you had started on hormones and you had, your hair, hair was long, you'd already been mammed a couple of times and you suddenly noticed that you were in the world of women by people looking at you and being closer to you and treating you just the way you should be in your head. And that must have been at the year 2000, that must have been an amazing experience. You're a pioneer. Thank you. <laughs> um, I appreciate that. There's also like, I felt at the time that there are all these pioneers before me. I mentioned activists from the nineties, but you know, like we have a, a long history. There are many people who transitioned um, before me. It, it was definitely, I think it was a very, it was different in the, the respect that there was very, so little like trans awareness that a lot of times when I was explaining to people what was happening, they just didn't know. I'd be like, you know, I'm transgender. And they'd be like, what? I'd be like, I'm a transsexual. And they'd be like, what? And I'd literally have to say to them, I was born a male and now I'm a female. You know, like, like obviously that's not language I would use. You had to like hit him over myself, the head with it, right? But I, re I really did a lot of times because just oh. there was not very much awareness then. But, you know, especially living right now, especially kind of in this world of backlash we're having, in some ways, I think it kind of made it easier. I mean, it made it harder in a lot of ways to not be able to connect with people and to say, you know, to have them understand immediately, like who I was or what I was going through, but also to just, it didn't cross people's minds that they would come across a trans person, or at least most people's minds. And so that in some ways made it safer, especially today where there's so much backlash and animosity and you hear stories all the time, not just of trans people being harassed in like say, restrooms or locker rooms, but like cis women who just look gender non-conforming, mm -hmm. experiencing the same thing. So in some ways it was, it was hard in some ways, maybe a little bit easier in other ways. Um, and that's sad that that's it. Cause I, for a while it looked like we were just making some progress, but I feel like we're very much in a backlash now. So it's kind of depressing that that's the case. Well, most recently in Medium, you wrote about this backlash in a number of ways. Uh, so from your view, what is, what, is what is really going on with the demonization of quote unquote, ooh, scary transgender activist? 
what's the real in your I mean in your view from all your experience right writing speaking etc from your view what is this narrative really about yeah it's and it's kind of fascinating so there's a history to it that I wrote about in my most recent medium piece but I will point out that uh some news organization this weekend uh, I, th I think people might be familiar with the fact that Caitlyn Jenner who is is not and a lot of ours for governor yeah. not a lot of ours favorite trans person um is running for governor and some news organization referred to her as transgender activist Caitlyn Jenner oh it's just like yeah I mean <laughs> like never was a transgender activist just a celebrity trans person but celebrity is the best it, word for her really yeah you know? and there's just this people like this stick activist on in feeling like it invalidates you. I mean, I, I think in a lot of people's minds, if you're an activist, that means you're a little bit, you know, radical or out of control. And, you know, I mean, what activists try to do is activists try to change people's minds and change the world, which is what a lot of people are doing, right? So I don't know why people like think that calling us an activist should be bad, but it is in their mind. I remember um, this guy uh, was a Chicago activist. His name was... Uh... Barack Obama <laughs> and become a senator. Yeah. And, and they, that like, he was president many, many years into his presidency. They were still bringing up that he was like a community activist. Organizer. Yeah, organizer. But that's one thing I'm not, but you know, it goes into that old saying, you know, first they, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. In some ways, that's the way I've seen, I, I kind of see it because for example, Julie, when you came out, a lot of people was like, trans what? <laughs> and then all of a sudden they, and all of a sudden they're like, and for a while we still were the butt of jokes. And again, we've always been a butt of jokes ever since Uncle Milton Burl. But now we're at that point where do you think now we've really gotten to the point where now they're fighting us. Yeah. And I, I think that there are a couple things that have happened. I, I think from an evangelical perspective, like the conservative right wing in this country, uh, a lot of this is very clearly their response to feeling like they lost fighting same sex marriage and gays in the military. Like they, they lost the fight on gays. I'm using that in scare quotes. Um, and so, there has been a very clear shift away from them targeting um, gays and lesbians. They don't really mention bisexuals a lot, but they, they've stopped targeting sexual orientation as much and have focused a lot more on trans people just because we seem to be an easier target for them. We're either scarier or newer um, and we can talk about like the potential reasons why, but they very clearly have decided to change their focus directly towards us. Yeah. Well, Whipping Girl was really important to me. That and Jenny Boylan, she's not there. It was so important that the first edition is now in the hands of another trans woman who was looking for guidance, looking for help. And I gave away my first copy, but then I got the second one when it came out five years, six years ago now. Um, tell us a little bit about why you decided to update the book in 2015. And I want to hear about your new book too. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the Whipping Girl update, that was from conversations with my publisher because it was getting close to being like 
it, I think the second edition came out a year before the 10th anniversary, but it was like right around that time. And so they approached me about it and it really made sense to write, especially for me, what the, the addition to it is I wrote a preface. Yes. Uh, that's looking back at it that I think explains not only why, like how the book came to be and not only all, all the, the huge changes in trans history that happened just in that short five, 10 years ish. Um, but I also got to explain kind of where the book was coming from, because I think a lot of what I said is, still remains true, is fairly universal about trans experiences, especially for those of us on the like trans female, trans feminine spectrum mm -hmm. of the community. But um, also some of the language has shifted quite a bit <laughs> and so it gave me a chance to explain, for instance, in the subtitle, I describe myself as a transsexual woman. Right. Um, and I know a lot of times people nowadays are like, the word transsexual to them sounds old or it sounds pathological. Sounds like Renee Richards or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so when I was writing it though, that was important because there was the a lot of the trans activists out of the 1990s, a lot of whom, um, had taken steps to transition. Um, they might be non-binary, but like it was important that they, how they move through the world and everything. And when I came out a little bit later, it was kind of like the height of, there's a lot of like queer theory and there are a lot of people um, who were not, um, how we would use, describe the word trans now who are kind of claiming that space. And I'm all for people being non-binary. I'm all for people being gender non-conforming. I'm for people doing drag. I think it's all great. But there was this real sense of what trans was, was blurring the lines. And I'm like, yeah, well, some of us actually have this experience where we understand ourselves to be a gender and we become that gender mm -hmm. um, sometimes social transition or physical transition, but I was trying to articulate some of those experiences. And so it felt necessary to use that word. So th that's like one example of, of like language that I use in the book and I explain why I use it in the book now with the preface. Um, and I think anyone who's been in the trans community, once you're in the trans community for more than a couple of years, you realize that that language is always shifting. Yes. <laughs> that like words sand. are very, yeah. And and so if you really, really like a particular term, it could like go out of favor really quickly and then come back <laughs> a couple of years later. So a quick follow-up, what's the new book? The new book. Um, I have it right here. This is oh, uh, good. yes. So it's this oh, is show my us first... again. I want to see. <laughs> okay. And yes, that is a banana slug on a magic wand. <laughs> um, although it's 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 actually a magic cat so you can't sue me for this people <laughs> um anyway so it's called 99 erics a cat cataclysm faux novel and so it's my first work of fiction and uh basically it follows it's told from the perspective of cat cataclysm who just so happens to be a bisexual um woman living in oakland california who's trying to write a first novel. Um, any resemblance to the author? Sounds like someone I might know. <laughs> yes, is, is coincidental perhaps. Um, no, but actually, the, so the book is 
Um, I like to describe it as silly, surreal, and sex positive. And the kind of the the ridiculous premise of it is that in cats, cat wants to write a novel, and for reasons that are explained early on in the book, she decides to date 99 different people named Eric. Um, and then that's going to be what her novel's about. So part of the book is her writing the book. So a lot of it breaks the fourth wall that she's talking about mm -hmm. writing the book you're reading. And then some of it, the conceit of having 99 Eric's is that there, um, some of the chapters are just her on dates with these various people. And so Mandarin. anything, and, and yeah, and anything that I wanted to like satirize or, or kind of have fun with, I was able to like do it by just putting her in the same room as some person and having the conversation go in that direction. How um, delightful. Oh. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to write. Um, and it's been getting good responses. It actually um, is a finalist for... Yeah, yeah, it's a finalist for the Publishing Triangles Debut Fiction Award. Congratulations. Yeah. We hope so you I'm win. Be, <laughs> I hope so too. But it's also great to just be a finalist. Um, I'm going to be in a reading on May 10th. Um, Where, the, in Oakland? No, no. Well, it's on Zoom. Oh, still. Um, that's right. We're still online. in COVID. I'm fully vaccinated now and I don't have to wear my mask outside. So I just feel like this new freedom. Like I was in a, I was in a mall parking lot today. I was like, I don't have to put my mask until I get to the mall and I have to put my mask on. Yeah. Well, well this actually can... turns out good for me because I think normally their award ceremonies are in New York, which would be, uh, I wouldn't be able to make it out there at this particular time, but I get it. it's fairly easy to just zoom in, so. <laughs> but I'm yeah, so that's wondering. kind of the, oh, sorry, yeah. No, I was just wondering, uh, are you gonna eventually in a spoken word piece break this word down, break this work down the way you broke down Little Red Corvette? I'm just wondering, <laughs> is there, a, is there a, an analysis breakdown of so, this book coming? You will be very happy to know that. Um, so for those who, who don't know what uh, Carly is referencing, um, I have in one of my Cat Cataclysm chapbook, I have a piece. It's uh, basically an open letter to Prince that kind of is from a confused listener trying to like talk about what's so confusing about Prince's Little Red Corvette. And actually that comes up in the book. I use a little snippet of it where um, Kat kind of makes some of those same jokes. <laughs> so, yeah. I kept mentioning Kat, and my, my cat said she wanted to be part of this, so okay. meet Faith. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, look at Faith. Oh, Faith doesn't want to be on TV. I didn't know you had kitties. Oh, my goodness. I just thought so, you were a dog person. So I have a dog and a cat. My cat belonged to my late wife, and uh, she was appropriately named Faith. And uh, unfortunately, we lost the wife, but we kept the cat. <laughs> so tell me this. When you are writing, are you the kind of writer who writes in longhand? Do you write on a computer? What's your muse? How do you do it? Uh, my friend Jenny Boylan, who's written a whole ton of books, she writes like a thousand words a day, every day in the morning, and then sometimes goes back to it. What's your method? Yeah, so I'm all computer. I started, I had written uh, before <laughs> I started writing. When I really started writing, it was already kind of computer world. <laughs> so uh, um, I, well, I do have journals. And so if I'm kind of out and about somewhere, sometimes I'll pull out a journal and do longhand. I mostly just write on the computer. 
Um, and I wish I had the Jenny Boylan power of a thousand words a day. <laughs> um, I'm a very, I am a very slow writer. Um, and that might be related to the fact that I'm a very slow reader. I'm very slow at both things. Um, and some of that might be a difference between fiction and nonfiction. I think. Uh, Plus I think you're also you're prolific doing... on social media. You are constantly tweeting. You are constantly taking on the demons and, and tilting at windmills. <laughs> um, yes, that's a habit. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I've, I've been doing that more. I mean, I, I tend to be on Twitter. That's like the social media platform I use. I'm mm -hmm. on other ones, but I don't use them nearly as much. Um, especially over the last year, it's been really hard because of the backlash that we've been in that I feel like there's always something outrageous. There's so much outrageous that's happening in the country in general and the world in general. And then particularly within, um, you know, kind of uh, trans communities and, and the backlash that we've been talking about. Um, so I do a bunch of that. That's kind of easier writing. Um, I, I tend to be so also, especially when I'm writing nonfiction, that comes about very slowly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I might just be a slow reader uh, or a slow reader and writer, but I think also working through, this is what I find when I'm writing something, sometimes I'm really excited and I get a lot down or sometimes I already have it all planned out in my head and I write it. But a lot of times I have a general topic I wanna to write on. And as I'm writing, I'm always changing how I think I should say it or how I wanna approach it. Um, so for that reason, I tend to write fairly slowly uh, when I'm writing something that I hope to be like say an essay. So. So yeah, and I try to write every day, but I don't uh, hold myself to that. And if I have days that I don't write anything, but I read a lot, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the input output idea that there are some days that you have a lot of output and then it's okay to have days where you're doing a lot of input. You're like reading things and listening to podcasts or um, taking in ideas. So yeah, I think looking for inspiration, yeah. right? I, yeah. I teach at a local university here in Connecticut, and I tell my students, good writers read, good readers write. Right. And it's very important. Oh, we have a sound that says we have to take a break. When we come back, Carly's got an update on Charlie Martin. Plus, we found out Julia Serrano is also a sci-fi fan. We'll be right back. You're in the Transporter Room. Welcome back to the Transporter Room, Carly Chardonnay Webb, along with Don Innes and Julia Serrano, author, spoken word, spoken word aficionado, sci-fi fan, and just general, like, trans bard, if you will, joining us. And again, honored to join us. And by the way, slow writers of the world unite. You have nothing <laughs> to lose but your pen. Being a slow writer, I can also... I can I can also relate to that because it sometimes it takes me hours to get one good paragraph because it's a jumble up here, but before we go on a little bit of new little bit of news from the trans sports world after all we are the trans sporter room, and just past just this past weekend while I was flat on my back thanks Moderna, <laughs> um, um, 
your favorite race car driver of mine, Charlie Martin, opening up the Brit Car Endurance Series season at good old Silverstone in England. And her and teammate Jack Bobby did something pretty sweet. They won. Oh, Charlie, go. Open, yeah, the opening, ra opening race of the season, first of two on the day. And Charlie ran a great first stint. In fact, ran a pair of great first stints. Jack Fabi bought it home in the second half of the race. And they got a win. They got a nice win. They brought home some hardware and that great-looking red and black, black Praga they're driving. And then in the second race, Charlie went no went went door handle to door handle with the defending series champion and the defending series champion was forced to blink in a battle for position within the Praga category of the of the um, of the series. He was able to move the car up to second and then Jack Fabi brought it home in the second race for a second so a first and a second great podium start for Charlie Martin and after a couple years in flex and finding a seat good to good to see her finding a home finding a great team, and from what looks of it, possibly a championship year. So, Charlie, good on you, and we're looking for more at Snedderton a couple weeks from now. Read all about it in Outsports.com. Exactly. But, Julia, one thing, um, you doing this writing, got the new got the new, no the new novels out there, and it's getting some fine reviews. In fact, I can tell you right now I'm going to order it because I'm looking forward to picking it up. Has, in a sense, has writing and creating – in a sense, give how much of a tonic does writing give you? How much does it give you any escape from the from tilting at the windmills on Twitter and dealing with the backlash and the more academic things you write? And also, how do you get your self care during this time when it seems like the transgender community just continues to go through siege after siege after mm. siege? So true. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, so I would say that, uh, for one thing, I've always had creative outlets. And the other creative outlet I've had in my life has been music. And in fact, but like my main creative outlet was music for most of my time until shortly after I transitioned. Then that's when I got into spoken word and I started writing for the page more. I felt that especially being trans and trying to want to say some complicated things about gender and sexuality and other things that writing was more direct and gave me more words to use than say writing a short three minute song. And yeah, I, I definitely have always found kind of the need to try to, to get what's inside me out and getting that onto the page or onto the computer screen uh, can, uh, it can be very relieving, cathartic. Uh, there can be a lot of good feelings with feeling like you've created something and else in the world. Um, it doesn't necessarily always have to be that way. Sometimes there are times where I'm writing something and it's a real struggle. And when I'm done with it, I'm very grateful to be completely done with it and never want to see it again. <laughs> that does happen sometimes. Uh, but I feel like I'm at my best writing when I'm really excited about what I'm writing. And I feel like getting that out of me and out into the world, um, that feels very relieving to me. And so th there definitely is a, a part of self-care self that is about getting what's inside of me out into the world. Um, and then otherwise, sometimes stepping away is good too. <laughs> uh, 
I found myself, especially during the, the wake of the election here in the US and the election being that was very, very decisive, not divisive. It was divisive, but not because the election <laughs> is divisive, and definitive, but because right? yeah. people are divisive. Yeah, but it was a very <laughs> definitive decision. And yet just the couple months that that was all going on and stretched out, there were just points in time where I just like, <laughs> just pulled away from that. I, I just, I want to be, I want to be on top of the news, but sometimes it's mm -hmm. okay to pull back and to just, you know, just read something completely different or watch something on TV that's completely different and separate. Uh, so that can be really important. It's been hard, I think for a lot of us, most of us during the pandemic in that things that I had in the past relied on for escape and self-care, whether that's getting together with friends and people in my life, uh, whether it's just like going to the gym every once in a while and losing myself, like doing some laps in a swimming pool, <laughs> like just losing all that has been hard, I think, for all of us. Like, that's not a me thing. I think that's a, a most of us thing. I want to play word games with you. A word that is on your title of your subtitle of your book, and it's important, is femininity. And a book, and the book also talks about feminism. And it seems almost as if TERFs have taken the word feminism and turned it into a negative word. Uh, before we started recording, we talked about how transgenderism is a word invented by trans people and also has been corrupted by enemies of trans people. And I was wondering, what's your thought process in terms of uh, reclaiming words like, you know, femininity, feminism, transgenderism? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I think every word is a little bit different. Uh, this is my understanding of feminism, that it's a very broad movement that exists in order to challenge sexism and sexism being double standards related to sex, gender and sexuality. And feminism has been around a long time and there are many different strands of it. And one tiny strand of it is what we have been calling trans-exclusive radical feminism or which is more commonly amongst those who promote it, gender, gender critical feminism. Mm. I think the problem is that for people who are not in feminism, that they can really be susceptible to the idea that it's transgender people versus feminists, right? And that's the battle that the TERFs, the gender critical people want to have. They right. want to have feminism be theirs and trans people being on the outside destroying feminism. And if you actually talk to people who are involved in feminism, and I say this as someone uh, who not only identifies as a feminist, but I spend a lot of times, I, I go to colleges, I'm invited by gender studies groups. Um, I know a lot of people who actually in their real life do feminist work that doesn't involve anything about like saying bad things about trans people. They're doing real feminist work. And all of these people, what they're doing, it's not in any way in, in conflict with trans people or trans people's existence. And most feminists I know are pro-trans or trans inclusive. So I feel that 
in the case of feminism, that's a word I'm not going to let go of because I don't think those people at all own it. Like that word existed before any of them were born and <laughs> most feminists are not transphobic. So just because they call themselves, you know, oh, we're feminists, that doesn't mean that A, you're right, or B, that the feminism you're doing is actually real, authentic, <laughs> valuable, useful, productive feminism. Right? But which wave, which wave are you? I've, I've heard there are fourth wave and fifth wave, and I'm like, I, I can't keep track of it. I just know that I'm a feminist, and I'm raising my sons to be feminists, too. Yeah, I think the wave thing doesn't isn't as useful as it was. The, the way that I understood it, so first wave feminism is everything leading up to like, you know, like through the suffragettes. So like, I think first wave feminism is a very, um, a many, many decade period. And then second wave feminism referred to uh, the feminism that came out of the, the 60s, 70s, 80s period. Um, which I think generationally that might be thought of as like a boomer generation or people who predated the boomers. So it's like kind of like that generation. And then third wave was used a lot starting in the 80s through the 90s to mean a couple different things. It partially refers to uh, the, the movement towards intersectionality, a lot of uh, feminists of color um, talking about the way in which you can't only talk about women, that feminism has to involve also challenging racism and classism. One and more time homophobia. for the people in the back. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and this is a lot of the reason why the gender critical turf people um, are bad feminists because they are the least intersectional feminists that exist on the planet. They're back older, on. they're whiter, and they're Hopefully gonna oh, die off someday. Oh, there's young. Don't get it. Don't sleep. There's young turfs. Oh, no, I know. I'm not saying there aren't. There are black turfs. There are but other see, turfs of thing, color. Though. They are loud, but they are small. There are not as many as they. It's like that one million moms thing. Well, it's really just one woman oh, in Florida. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there are a lot of there. There are a lot of gender critical identified people, especially in the UK. Oh, it's very UK. Think, oh my gosh. Yeah, but I, I think a lot of it comes from the, if you. Sadly, I've been on a lot of their timelines because I, I hand block people. And <laughs> so if I get mentions, I'll sometimes go through people's timelines. The people who are like really, really anti-trans who call themselves gender critical, you go on their timelines and they're only talking about trans stuff. Like it's like literally only trans stuff. Like you go there and they aren't ever talking about like- uh, Feminism. You know, choice. <laughs> yeah. or they aren't talking about- um, you know, any of the myriad issues that that relate to sexism and women's experiences with sexism. Oh, so. see, that's that's one of my pet peeves with them, especially when they talk about something I care about, which is sports. It's funny. They are jump they're jumping all over themselves to talk about, oh, these these biological males in sport. Yet none of y'all talk about things like more opportunities for women in athletics, better funding for women in athletics, better coverage for women in sport. More women as sports journalists, more women in front offices, more women in coaching, more women in administration. They never talk about that. And also, scratch a transphobe, you might find a racist. Look at Missouri. They have a bill on they have a bill that's going to ban 
transgender student students from being a part of school sports, and they're hooking that bill up to making sure that no student can learn about the 1619 project either. Like I said, trans, yeah. scratch transphobe, you'll scratch, you'll find a misogynist and a racist all at the same time. Well, we have an opportunity here. We have a biologist who can tell us if the term biological male is an accurate term. Um, yeah, they like to claim science is on their side. Uh, it's, it's very clear and, and generally accepted, especially nowadays, that as with any field, there's like evolutions in the way people think about it. And I'm sure if you go back to like the, the 80s, 1980s, for example, um, a lot of people would look at trans women as, as biological males. A lot of biologists might do that. But nowadays, there's a lot more understanding of gender and sexual diversity, uh, which includes uh, people who are intersex, who um, whose bodies or anatomies don't fit into what's considered standard for male or female. There's transgender people whose gender identities or gender expressions don't match what is socially expected for people based on your assigned sex or gender. Um, and, you know, there's people who vary in their sexual orientations. There's a lot of awareness right now, especially in biology, that what sex is, is it's a complex trait, meaning there are a lot of different factors that go into it. We also know that there are a lot of, when you say sex, what are you talking about? You're talking about my chromosomes, are you talking about my genitals, are you talking about my hormones, um, aspects of my reproductive anatomy? Like that could mean a lot of things. And once you start looking at it like that, then it's really clear that a lot of people who, who we think of as cisgender, um, their, their sex would become under suspect because of the fact, oh, well, if, you know, to be a, a biological woman, you need to be able to like be pregnant and have children. It's like, well, yeah, there are a lot of cisgender women for whom that's not a possibility for them physically. And on top of that, it's like when we see people and when we categorize people like walking down the street, if we see someone, when we categorize them, what we're usually basing it on is not chromosomes not genitals, <laughs> what we're doing is, is generally based on secondary sex characteristics and which are malleable. And as those of us who have hormonally transitioned have experienced, it's like your secondary sex characteristics change. That's why yes. when I walk down the street, as a general rule, people just, they, they don't see me as a biological woman they just read me as female, just in the same way that if you're a cisgender woman, they just are picking up on clues. And there are a lot of problems built into that, obviously, because we tend to see people, we're socialized to see people in a very binary way as either, you know, men or women, right? So there are a lot of problems with that. But what, what that highlights is the fact that some aspects of sex, biological sex, is malleable. And for a lot of us who are trans, that our biological sex changes in a lot of ways. So it's just a very, um, it's a very futile argument to like try to call like trans women biological males and trans men biological females. Because once you start looking at biology, it becomes really clear that biology is way more complex than that. Biology is not fully binary. 
and that trans peoples are biological sex changes, particularly if we're hormonally transitioning, right? So thank you for tackling that. And I think that everyone thinks that their high school education on biology was enough for them to become experts on biology. You know, I promised myself I was going to read too much from your book, but there was something in Whipping Girl that really stood out to me. And all these years later, I have you here now to finally talk about. And it's something that really follows up with what Carly was saying. Because transsexual and intersex people have virtually no voice in academic and political discourses on gender, our perspectives are easily overshadowed, even subsumed by those who have the academic credentials to position themselves as authorities on the subject. When I see a TV show, and I'm a former TV producer, I worked in television in mainstream media for 30 years. And when I see them take on these issues about transgender, and there's not one trans person, the trans military ban, uh, these issues along the states, they don't think that they need to have a trans person there representing our voice. And it drives me crazy. And I'm so glad you addressed that in your book because it's so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing <laughs> else to say. Yeah. To say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, and that goes to the heart of, I, th I think it's important. We, we, we throw around words uh, throw around is like, I'm saying that kind of flippantly, throw around words like transphobia and people will all of a sudden be like, oh, I'm not, well, I'm not afraid of trans people. I have trans friends and all that. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I have a black friend but, too, I'm sure. But yeah. I think, yeah, well, I think that, I think that a lot of what's going on with regards to any type of phobia or ism, a lot of it is, it is unconscious and a lot of it can be found in how you would react to a particular situation under one circumstance versus another. Um, the idea that you would have, say, you know, we're doing with your sports show, like having a panel of people talk about like, you know, the lives of athletes and to not have an athlete on seems like preposterous. How could you do a show about the life of, of athletes without having actual athletes be interviewed? Like you or just men get... talking about abortion. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that once, once you frame it like that, people will often go, oh, okay, now um, I see. But it doesn't hmm. strike them at the time as weird just because unconsciously they devalue us or they see us as not authorities on our own life. And yeah, and, and that is that is something that still, I still see that all the time in articles about, <laughs> I, I, I don't wanna get into specifics about specific writers who write really horrible ar articles about trans people, but you can see it sometimes where it's like, hey, you just did a 10,000 word article in a mainstream thing about like trans healthcare and you didn't have interview any trans people. Like how? That's how part, you do it, that? That's yep, unfortunately I, par for the course. It, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. Really I, I wrote a rebuttal is. in USA Today because USA Today announced the Women's Sports Policy Working Group in an article that interviewed all these cisgender women talking about transgender uh, athletes and didn't talk to one trans person. So I petitioned to write a rebuttal and they published it, which thank goodness, we finally had a voice 
in USA Today, but it's so frustrating. Carly, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, it's not that because exactly, Don, what you wrote was beautiful, and you gave oh, me a you. chance to read it before you you uh, submitted it on. And I mean, all that aside, I talk about the the cisgender women's pol sports policy working group enough, but I wrote a very similar thing on um, Trans Day of Visibility, and talked about one of the things. Julie and Julie, I want you to ring in on this. At what point in all these stories and all the coverage in your mind, based on what you've seen, at what point will trans people ever fully be humanized in all this? Do I, I mean, do I get to be human at some point? And if so, when do you see that point happening? Because right now, all these stories seem like they sound like Godzilla against Mecha Godzilla in a lot of ways. They make us out to be monsters. When do I get to be human in all this? Yeah, um, it's kind of funny. I not funny, but um, the, basically the 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 writer of really bad trans articles that I was um, subtweeting there. <laughs> I was uh, not specifically naming them, but but mentioning their article. Um, they, in a different article that they wrote about trans people, referred to, and this came out in like 2018. They referred to like people are familiar with all of the wonderful um, articles about transgender people and progress transgender people have made. And it was like, like, what are you talking about? Are you talking about like that that one year period, one and a half year period where like like people were celebrating Laverne Cox and then like Caitlyn Jenner transitioned the year later, like that 2014, 2015. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That one year period that was the transgender tipping point because it was like there were a couple celebrity trans people, and we talked about celebrity trans people with regards to Caitlyn Jenner, like being very clear. Laverne Coxon is in a very different category <laughs> as someone who has really done like a lot of amazing activist work, in addition to being a celebrity for being a, a, an amazing actor too, right? Um, so, so putting that aside, just this idea that like people read a couple nice pieces about trans people and particularly there's the whole like transgender journey um, kind of idea which can happen in documentaries, it can happen in memoirs, it can be done well or poorly, right? Like you mentioned, you know, Jenny Boylan obviously writing a really um, amazing memoir. There can be like horrible documentaries of like tonight on Nat Geo, we're going to bring you into the mysterious world of transgender people. Let's um, look inside her closet. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I so, know. Oh. So there, anyway, I think that for some people, that's all there is to trans people is that trans people just have these stories. And then everything else about trans people is like serious minded cisgender people who really know what's going on doing all the talking on our behalf. And it's endlessly frustrating. And there are definitely some signs of it being better. There are trans journalists who, who are writing and doing good work and um, media outlets that will publish smart, um, factually correct <laughs> articles about trans people. Uh, so, Unfortunately, there's still the exception, I, I fear. So, yeah. Well, Carly mentioned Godzilla. So we're going to sort of segue now into the fantasy sci-fi world. 
so what's your what's your thing? What do you uh, groove on in terms of sci-fi? So yeah, I so my experience with sci-fi is uh, when I was younger, that was uh, really those were the first books I really read for enjoyment. I can't remember everything that <laughs> uh, that I read back then. I remember like when I was in high school, Dune was like my very favorite book. Sure. Um, and you know, I remember reading like Robert he Heinlein. Heinlein, yeah. Um, you know, I, I I remember reading a bunch of sci-fi books. Uh, one one that I really liked that actually uh, kind of partially inspired 99 Eric's is uh, I love the Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Yes, don't forget um, your towel. <laughs> exactly. I I used to describe 99 Eric's as that it was. Like uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy meets a Michelle T novel, except none of it happens in outer space, mm -hmm. which in my mind kind of is like what it feels like. But I think the mixture, the Venn diagram of people who are really into Douglas Adams and people really into Michelle T, like barely touch. And I'm like one of the few people. You're right in the middle <laughs> at there. that intersection. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so like I really like that. And then since then, I don't do a lot of. Uh, I will occasionally read sci-fi, um, but for me, mostly, uh, especially since I do so much writing and reading for things that I'm writing, um, a lot of my escapist stuff happens um, um, on TV or the movies, which are the exact same thing, particularly during a pandemic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I would say most of the stuff I'm familiar with nowadays uh, is stuff that you will find on the TV screen in my apartment. Um, I, 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 I was in college when uh, Next Generation happened. Mm -hmm. um, so there's kind of like the revival of all the Star Treks that then kind of went on into the early aughts. Um, so I've definitely- Or the zeros as you call it, the zeros. Yes, the zeros, <laughs> yes. I sometimes say aughts now, I hated the word aughts. I would not <laughs> use the word aughts at all during the aughts. Yeah, I call them the 2000s, but you're you're yeah. certainly welcome to come up with your own. Yeah, the zeros uh, are good. We're both Star Trek fans. Uh, I just recently became this year a writer for StarTrek.com, uh, and okay. I wrote about all the Discovery cast members. There are six of them who are LGBTQ and out, which is really crazy and amazing and wonderful. Um, I'm working on yeah. two pieces right now. One is about when are they going to have a trans woman on any Star Trek? Just one somewhere who regularly appearing, not just like a guest star. And the other is, which original series character would you want to go to Ryza with? Carly, which one would you choose from the original <laughs> series to go to Ryza? Oh, that's a dang good question. Thank you. I pitched that, that and they loved good. it. <laughs> I mean, that is a dang good question. Where would I want to go? Hmm, not just anywhere, but to Ryza. See, I picked, wow. I, I picked Scotty because I figure he'll get me drunk. We'll have fun. And who will tell the story after? I don't care. <laughs> See, that's a that's a tough one from original series. Yes, original series. No, I'm I'm torn on that one because part of me like, do I get Girls Weekend with the Uhura? Yeah, going singing and dancing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Girls Weekend with the Uhura or Fun and Hell Weekend with Sulu. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I mean, one. I 
Okay, I'll lean to Aurora because I could use, I mean, especially through this pandemic, could use the girls' weekend. And besides, we could both bitch about everybody, especially especially Captain Kirk. I mean, <laughs> you've you got to have the bitch session with wine and cheese. You must have it. Plus, you both sing, which I love. Yeah, which would mean we'd be doing a lot of karaoke. No, it would be karaoke, karaoke, right? We'd be putting on shows. <laughs> All right. Julia, you're on the spot. Would you have an original series character you would want to go to Ryza with, the Pleasure Planet? Yeah, see, that's hard with the original series because I, you know, I, I've watched all them. I also, I was like a kid when those were on, those were always on the background. And yes. I only revisited them after I got into Star Trek Next Generation. A lot that's, of folks are like that. Yeah. And so I don't find the characters from that show appealing. Like, I definitely like Spock a lot. But I don't know that he would be like the person to hang out with on like a pleasure planet. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, no, like, no, no. Okay, then then let's then let's script. Let's go next generation. Who would you okay. go? Who would you go with next next gen? That's a that's a good question. Yeah, that would be easier. Um, you know, like, I mean, Guinan would be a lot of fun. Oh, to, like, yes. Like, cause you were talking about the stories, you know, with like Scotty, Guinan would have all the stories plus would be like a super fun hang. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't uh, go with Troy though, because Troy senses emotions and no, I'd be yeah. worried about- No, that, no. That, would, that would creep me out. I don't know why, why everyone else is just totally okay with her just like always sensing their emotions. <laughs> that freaks me out. Um, Julia, how do you identify <laughs> by the way? Are you like Kat? Are you bisexual? Oh yeah, I'm bisexual, yes. See, you know what's funny is that most people in the LGBT community, the majority are bisexual, and yet there's still this stigma of, well, that's just a phase, or you're just trying it out, or you're greedy. And <laughs> I have found in my research and in my writing that there are more bisexuals than any other section of the LGBT community. And I, I sort of feel like I'm on that spectrum because I'm mm -hmm. only in love with one woman most of my life, and I only dated women. And since coming out, I've dated men. And I'm sort of torn as to where I land on that whole spectrum thing, but I'm pretty sure I'm probably going to end up on the buy side. <laughs> yeah, I I think I think that there are. I mean, I think that there are historical reasons why gay and lesbian people, particularly when to be out as gay or lesbian, kind of meant that you were going to completely have this life that was almost totally in this gay and lesbian community, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and I, particularly in, in thinking about bisexuality and current debates about it, I think a lot about um, the idea of being culturally queer in that uh, there are bisexual people, all bisexual people are bisexual, <laughs> right? So I'm not like gatekeeping bisexuality, but I do think that some of the debates that I've heard um relate to um i think there's some of us like i'm very culturally queer in that like my friends and who i hang out with and everything it's like just a very very queer very very queer segment of the community it's a very open queer you know there's trans people but there's cis people there are people who are there who are a queer couple but if the average person walking down the street saw them would assume they were heterosexual because they look heterosexual in their eyes, although maybe, you know, neither of them is heterosexual or maybe they're trans and they're queer in that way. Right. So 
I do think that there's this idea, an old idea of bisexual people as during a time when you were either like in the queer community or you were in the straight community where being bisexual is this idea that you could retreat to this safe straight community anytime you wanted to, which is a myth <laughs> um, because the straight community is, is not necessarily safe for bisexual people. Um, and I think that for a lot of people, those divisions are still there. Um, but I do think there are sometimes people who are bisexual who might not have as much queer awareness as other people because they haven't been in queer communities a lot. But that should be okay because there are young, gay, lesbian, and trans people who don't have much experience with our community who are just getting involved in it, right? So I think that there should be some space for for people to be able to come into the community um, without immediately jumping to conclusions about um, what that means, particularly with regards to the idea that like, oh, you can leave whenever you want to because you know you have heterosexual privilege and all that stuff. So I talk about that a lot. My second book, uh, Excluded, which is the book I come out as bi in. Um, and Whipping Girl identifies lesbian, which is how I identified then. Um, but anyway, I talk a, lo uh, a lot about those dynamics in Excluded um, for those interested. So. And we wish everyone who does identify as lesbian a uh, happy Lesbian Visibility Week. And Carly, I asked the first question. You get to ask the last one. Julia, first off, I want to say thank you for writing Whipping Girl. Because and Excluded. When, uh, <laughs> and 99 Eric's. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to 99 Eric's, but especially that because when... When I went, the night I went to my first support group, way, way, way back around like 2012, someone told me, if you really want to understand what's going on and, and the journey you could be taking, you need to read this book. And they let me borrow it. So in, in a lot of ways, thank you. In, in, a, in a small part, because of Whipping Girl, I am happy to say I am here. And yeah, thanks. You... You have a second edition. Our, your second edition has been out for some time. And even now with so many changes in the community, even since the second edition came out, people, I, I even find myself recommending it. Dawn recommends it. People still recommend it. At, at, my, at my friendly neighborhood Pride Center, there's three copies on the shelf ready to check out. And it's always checked out newbies people have been in a while whether you're late transition or early tra wherever you are people it's still very much resonant first does it surprise you it's resonated as long as it had and secondly why do you think it has resonated as much as it has even now yeah that's a good question so first thank you for the kind words and it's always you know i always feel honored when people say that the book was important and useful to them. I think when I was writing it at the time, I felt like I was writing the book, you know, because I had read trans themed books that were important to me that helped me figure out who I was. But I felt like there weren't any that I felt like talked about some of the things I wanted to talk about, which ended up being in the books. So I felt um, I, 
I was trying to write a book that I thought in my mind might help me back when I was younger. And so I'm always flattered when people say that that's what the book was for them. And so I, I'm, that's, that's awesome. And thank you for that. And as far as, I think if I, if I have to say, it's always hard to talk about, well, the reason why my book was so important is blah, blah, blah. Um, it's a little bit hard to talk like in those terms. I think the one thing the book captured that I don't think books before it captured, and people have talked about it since, was specifically the intersection of not just being trans, uh, which people had already talked about, but the intersection of the way in which um, being seen as trans feminine, um, how, how that is seen in a world that's misogynistic and sometimes very, very strongly anti-feminine in a world. And I, I talk about this in, in Whipping Girl where even though in this world that we live in, people will at least give lip service to the idea that, well, yeah, women are men's equals. Like almost nobody is willing to say, yeah, femininity is masculinity's equal. And I think a lot of those ideas are, you can, they appear everywhere. They appear in all of the old medical gatekeepers writings, which I talk about, they appear in all the old media depictions and some new ones as well. Sure. Uh, and so, yeah, so I, I think that that is something that I touched on that other people have since written, written about and everything, but I, I think that was the one thing that I tried to do in that book that I think is the main reason why it resonates with people, even if, you know, the language or some of the terms I use might be a little bit, uh, you know, not what people, not the language people are using today. The general ideas are continue to be true, sadly, that there's still just a lot of trans misogyny out there. And um, so that would be why I think the, the book resonated. A quick follow-up to that before we let you go. Um, because sure. one thing that's near and dear to my heart, because when you said something, when you said about ma femininity equaling to masculinity, that that put a flat, that put a light bulb on my head. And I want to get this, especially as somebody who, who really lives at that intersection being an athlete. When you listen to... When you listen to all these things in regards to trans people in sports, especially all that backlash that's come out, how much in your mind does what you just talk about play into that in regards to how we see feminine versus masculine in our society? Sure, yeah. I think this is the thing that really strikes me is that there are two ways that you can caricature trans women. And so one... The version that I see, especially with all the horrible trans sport, anti-trans propaganda that exists, is you, you can character trans women with the, like, the man in the dress, right? And you see a lot of these um, right-wing, the anti-trans propaganda that they'll just show. And I, I don't know how many of them are photoshopped or, or what they're trying to depict, whether they're depicting a especially masculine cisgender woman or whether the person is transgender but it's this uh, idea of this like giant man in a dress who's like invading women's spaces 
But then the whole opposite of that is you can like mock trans women with, you know, what I talk about in the book is like kind of like the, the really, really hyper feminine caricature of trans women. Like, you know, the, um, I think a lot about the book trans, not the movie Trans America, mm -hmm. which was like a, a movie that won an Oscar in the early 2000s, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it, the actor with Felicity Huffman is a cis woman, but like she was like always putting on clothing and her nails were always really done. And she was like tripping in heels. And it was like this whole joke. Stereotyping. Was, and it was a joke. It was a joke about femininity. Femininity was the joke, right? Like mm -hmm. she was always putting on makeup. And, and so it is very striking that the two ways that we get smeared trans women and people in the trans feminine spectrum are as either hyper masculine man in a dress or as hyper feminine, um, frivolous, clueless woman wannabe, right? Like that's just, a caricature is what I was yeah, called. It's a when I, first came out. Yeah. I heard that from someone very close to me and it hurt me to, to know yeah. him. And there's a lot of feminists, um, even way before our current TERFs uh, situation. Uh, feminists saying, oh, well, like, you know, trans women are parodies right. of, of women, right? Imitations, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so both those really resonate with people. And I think that they're, they're both trans misogynistic in different ways. <laughs> right. and, and misogynistic too i mean yeah. oh yeah yeah, honestly, yeah it's misogyny at its core carly and i talked about this a million times on this podcast that transphobia is misogyny mm -hmm. yes it is and but uh, by all at the same time i also find it very contradictory on what i'm either i'm either this dominating automaton machine that's going to take all your your all those cute little girls opportunities away or i'm a total ditz it can't be both <laughs> it can't, yeah. it can't be both. Yeah, I know. Pick a lane. I mean, that's the one thing that gets me about this whole about this whole discourse is that pick a lane. I can't be, but also in a sense, women of I I asked the question in part because when, cisgender women in sports get tarred with the same brush. Yes, it happens. Those who are from, male appearing, yeah, yes, masculine. It, it's happened from Babe Didrikson all the way to Serena Williams. Sure. And well, again, it goes back to one question. When do do I ever get any humanity from this deal? Or is humanity something I'm going to have to go out there and take? Hmm. What'll it be? Yeah. I don't know if Julia can answer that one, but I will ask Julia, what's your um, what's your recommendation? Do we march in the streets? Do we keep writing? Do we um, hold fast? Do we... Um, you know, go to the polls, run for office. What's what's your solution in your mind in terms of where does this go? Where does this end? How do we how do we win? Yeah. Um. So I think in general, I think a lot of times people want activism. Like a lot of times, people say, "Oh, activists should do this and shouldn't do that." And I think that's kind of ridiculous because, for one thing, there's there's nobody, there's no like chief trans activist. Activists. <laughs> like who, who's giving us marching orders it's just individual people and so you know there are people that, that i think it's really cool they're like trans people who are running for office which i and i can't imagine myself ever wanting to do 
<laughs> but like, I can do this thing. I, I'm a good writer and I, I, I can write. That's the thing I can do. And, Damn you know, everyone has their own little, little niche. Like there's some things that I'm very fascinated by, like particularly like a lot of, you know, trans related diagnoses and theories that maybe because I came out of a science background, like I write disproportionately about those. Um, but that's fine because other people like, you know, you all are, are doing like, like trans sports and that's, mm -hmm. you know, an, a, another important facet. And then there are other people who are like writing about other issues or, or doing more kind of in the streets sort of activism. So I think we should be doing all of it. Um, as for how it all turns out, um, I'm, I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic and I say cautiously optimistic because it's a very dark time right now. Just uh, the map of how many states are putting out anti-trans laws or, or proposing them, not just about sports, but especially the, the trans healthcare ones yeah. are like, heart, like, like basically we're going to outlaw healthcare for you. And oh, if your parents try to get you that healthcare will label them child abusers and like you could be taken away from them. Like that's just like really beyond the pale. But I think this is what I feel has changed and maybe I'm overly optimistic here, but I felt like a couple years ago, there was just like article after article of the type I talked about earlier of like bringing into questions like, are people rushing children into like transgendering too soon and there are all these like moral panic articles that mm -hmm. like were happening like post tipping point up up through like you know the last few years then i think now yeah. yeah and i think now people are like when i say people i mean like the general like cis majority i think i'm seeing some people going like holy crap this is really extreme what these people are doing and so <laughs> the the person who I've been obliquely talking about as like a writer about like trans related articles that were sort of moral panicky about trans healthcare. Yes. Um, he has since come out. There's a reason why I'm not saying his name. No, out don't now. say his name. Please don't. Yes. No, no, no. I'm we not all know saying who he is. No. Yes. We all know. But, but like he all of a sudden is like, even he is like, whoa, these bills are like way, you know, like these. But these they're are quoting him. They're, they're citing his work. No, I know. He did this. He yeah. is part of, he, he, he helped he. create the environment yeah. that this oh, is Oh, look, in. I started a not fire. Yeah, yeah, I didn't mean, for, not just him. No, no, no. Yeah, but, but the, like, the, the, the economists ran like a bunch of these articles that other places yeah. did. But, but the, the point I'm making is, I think the rest of the world is now looking at this like being like, holy crap. And the way that I see it and something that has changed in my mind, if, if we still have time that I could like, to say a little something more. We have as much time as Julia Serrano has. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is what has really struck me. And this struck me during that moral panicky time. I wrote in like 2019, I was confused. Like one of these ideas that came out of that, that moral panic thing, that person who we're not talking about kind of alluded to was the idea of social contagion, mm -hmm. like children, like- Trans, trending. Trans yeah, trans trending and social contagion. I'm like, where where did this come from? Where did this idea come from? And so like, I literally did an investigation. I'm not really a journalist, but like I did a ton of Google searches. And what I found was the idea came from 
one of three websites that were the first three anti-trans parent groups that mm. started online. And if you follow this whole thing, if you follow that timeline and you follow what has happened ever since was those people organized parents who, some of whom were clearly anti-trans to begin with um, and who espouse like really ridiculous stuff. Like no one should be able to transition until they're 25. And um, you know, one of them, one of the biggest ones is was started out explicitly turf in their language and 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 what they believe about trans people. Um, right around that time is when there was this organization of kind of a backlash against trans people. And so when all that stuff was happening in 2006 and seven, 2016, 17, 18, etc., like that was all organized, but most of us didn't recognize at the time. I didn't recognize at the time because I wasn't paying attention to that. But they basically organized all these anti-trans parents groups. And that is what has created this backlash, particularly with regards to legislation of them joining with the, the religious right and the, the gender critical turf people, those groups already existed. And now, and they also have kind of in their collection of people, um, they've, they've picked the last few of kind of the old school trans psychologists and sexologists who have the outdated views of like, mm -hmm. we should do gender reparative therapy, even though they won't call it that. And we should do stricter gatekeeping, which completely failed. And so they have this slew of people who are a minority of people, but they organized and they won over all these media groups to mm -hmm. like put out their stuff about, you know, these moral panic pieces about transgender contagion and detransition, which detransition being a real thing, but kind of the way it gets framed is basically that almost all the people involved in that organized detransition thing are very closely related to, um, closely tied to a lot of anti-trans feminism. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, detransitioning is something a lot of people do and a lot of people are still- I did it. Yeah, a I lot of people, it. a lot of people, I have friends who have detransitioned, but they're still involved in trans communities because yeah. even though they detransition, they're still like yeah. part of our communities. It, so, I, I hate I hate that they're detransitioners who are good people who are, you know, branded with this thing. Because I went through a time, so did that celebrity Caitlyn Jenner. She mm -hmm. started on hormones and then decided I can't do this. So it happens to more people than we know. People don't generally publicize that detour that they make. And unfortunately, mine was in the mass media, so I didn't have much of a choice. But, you know, I want to bring you good news to end on. We reported at OutSports this week that a Maris poll, also sponsored by NPR and PBS NewsHour, found that 75% of, no, 66% of people of both Democrats and Republicans, 69% for um, Democrats and 66% for Republicans were against these laws, against trans bans. The only problem with those study was it also found that 66% of the Republicans also are against trans inclusion. So they want policies banning trans people, they just don't want laws. So that's really where the problem is, is that Republicans are overwhelmingly still against trans inclusion, but at least a majority of Americans 
from both sides of the aisle think that, you know, bans state laws are wrong. And that's, that's, a, that's accomplishment. That's some good news. Yeah. And I, I'm starting to see some changes in the media where I think the media is just now, like they weren't about a month ago. I felt like it was like trans people are shouting in a vacuum. I think the Arkansas law, the fact that that passed. Um, over the veto, yeah. Yeah, over the veto. I think people are now starting, I'm starting to see other or, like organizations, media organizations, mainstream media organizations start to take these laws seriously. Um, I still don't think they completely get it. Like I, I see a lot of times they talk about like, oh, well, the Republicans found their wedge issue with this transgender thing. It's like, no, they actually want us to disappear. They right. literally want us to disappear. Go away, trans people. Issue. Yeah. This, is, this is just, they want us to go away. But I, I so I feel, I feel more optimistic now than I did a month ago. Okay. Um, still dark times. Um, but we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. I don't think that there's a majority of people in the U.S. as, as the poll you just said, um, who kind of, you know, wants to completely demonize trans people um, or completely outlaw trans healthcare, et cetera. So, as Carly often reminds us, let's not forget, these are children. They're somebody's exactly. children. And yeah. we need to remember that. You know, you're not an activist, but you are an award-winning writer, an author, a biologist, and a musician. Plus, you just happen to be a trans woman. Julia Serrano, thank you for joining us in the Transporter Room. Carly, please set coordinates for Oakland, California, and live long and prosper. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, bye. Thing. Julia, you got to come back. Okay. You, gotta, yeah, you, have, to, you have to come back, especially when we do that. We're going to do that cast reading of 99 Eric, so you got to come back. There okay, you go. I'll definitely be back for that. <laughs> we'll get some Eric's. I know some Eric's. Okay. <laughs> Okay, we're going to beam Julia back home. Thank you. Okay. It was Bye. an honor. Energize. Yes, My honor. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> Carly, I'll see you next week. See you. See you all next week. Live long and prosper, everybody. All right. Take care.